During my senior year of high school, I wrote what I thought was an exhaustive treatment of every ESL method for my AP English class. We were to pick a topic related to our intended college major, and I was jealous of classmates headed for the sciences. Olestra was a cool topic. The classmate with that topic got to study potato chips that promised to save us from obesity. That's Joy Santee, assistant professor of English at McKendree University, where she teaches, directs the writing center, and coordinates the university's writing across the curriculum program. She's reading her piece, Writer in the Attic, Place-Based Constraints on Research Writing, that was published in the September 2014 issue of College Composition and Communication, or 3Cs. Let's hear the rest of her story, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about what I'm up to here. Although I didn't see the need for ESL research in rural Iowa in the mid-90s, Mrs. Kaufman assured me I would need it for college. Our school's library had little for me, but a field trip to Iowa State University's library changed what was possible. I never knew so many books could exist in one place. All these books, semi-hidden stairways leading to books on narrow terraces. Who knew you might ever need a map to find a book? I tried really hard to look like a college student and played it cool, but all those books intoxicated me. I don't remember being offered database access then, or whether I had the slightest notion that journals were anything other than manly diaries. I just remember the rush to find and photocopy as many book chapters as I could, given our few short hours and the limited number of coins in my pocket. I made snap decisions about whether any given page was worthy of my nickels based on a quick skim for key quotes. I didn't know any better. The scope of my project was ambitious, of course, but apart from the many passive sentences that Mrs. Kaufman decisively underlined in red and marked with a large P on earlier papers, I was used to succeeding in my writing and confident I could turn those photocopied pages into an A paper. I thought I had everything for research writing success at my disposal then, and I'm glad now that I did not know differently. I would have been overwhelmed by understanding how little I knew, how crude my research process, how blunt the color-coded note cards I'd made from my photocopies. Only kids in my AP English class, only the second offered at our school, did research papers. Only the AP class got to go to the ISU library. I thought I knew what I was doing. Our final draft was to be typed, but with only an electric typewriter at home, earlier drafts had to be done by hand draft, actually, not drafts. Rewriting in any real way was too difficult with just a typewriter, so I relied on a detailed outline and advanced with unearned confidence. I wrote in my attic bedroom an unheated space on the cold north side of an old farmhouse. With a single bare bulb and just a small bed and dresser, I didn't realize the trope I was recreating. Poor student, cold, writing in solitude in an attic in winter. The church people and my mom's determined work ethic kept us from being threadbare, and I don't think the students in the trope had stuffed animal collections, but I wrote there anyway, often in bed on my stomach under a warmish tent of blankets, my breath on my hand to keep it warm enough to hold the pencil as I wrote. Sometimes I could convince the cat to join me under the covers and share his furry heat, but most often I wrote alone. Downstairs was warm enough, but distractions eliminated it as a place of writing. Wheel of Fortune, an obnoxious pubescent younger brother, my pet rabbit Buster, 
So to my bed I went to write. By the final draft of the paper, the north wind blew less and spring was well on its way, warming my room and my writing hand and helping me get my A, complete with fewer passive sentences. My exhaustive treatment of all major ESL methods in 15 pages was, of course, a failure by academic standards that call for innovation in thought with nearly every page, but I learned what was possible with a single afternoon at a library, a pencil, and a few blankets to keep me warm. This semester, my students' laptops, grandmothers, and distant uncles will begin dying off just before key deadlines, just as they do each semester. I'll read paper after paper on football concussions, video game violence, and global warming, but I'll also see the fraught relationships my students have with their own places of writing. Derek complains about a roommate who consistently comes home drunk at four in the morning. John wonders why his parents can't just leave him alone when he's in the zone, bedroom door closed. Marissa tells me she starts twitching if she hasn't checked her phone in the last three minutes. Janelle juggles school and work while caring for both her son and her mother. Sometimes I tell these students about the farmhouse attic, about finding a place and a way to write. I remind them that phones can, in fact, be turned off without harm, walk them through the process of getting a new roommate, at least for next semester, and help them create scripts to talk to their parents about boundaries. I don't know what to tell Janelle, and eventually she drops the class, unable to sustain her 3.30 a.m. wake-up time, the only time she can find to write. She promises me she'll be back in my class next semester, but I know that's not likely. I now write in a warm house with a desk, relative quiet, database access, and good coffee, but writing is still hard. My brother moved to my grandparents' farmhouse, and Buster finally died. Nearly half of the kindergarten class of my small meatpacking town now speaks Spanish as a first language. It's been a long time since I've written under a tent of blankets, though the attic bedroom is still cold when I go home for Christmas, and I'd have to revive it if I were to write there, since Wheel of Fortune still blares downstairs, too, from the TV atop the fridge. Last fall, one student told me he wrote part of his final paper in his car, the only quiet space he could find. I hope he had enough gas money to turn on the heat once in a while, but I didn't have the heart to ask. That was Joy Santee, who tweets at Circumtrection. That's Circum, T-R-E-K-T-I-O-N. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy, and I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University. This is episode six, Locations of Writing, where you'll hear four brief vignettes that were all published in that September 2014 issue of Three Cs, all read by the authors and presented here with the permission of NCTE, the journal's parent organization. Before you hear the other three vignettes, let me give you a little bit of context, or actually let me give Kathleen Blake Yancey a chance to give the context. She's the editor of this issue of the journal, and her introduction helps explain what these pieces are up to. We couldn't work our schedules out to get Kathy herself on the show, even though she really wanted to. So I'm just going to read them here myself. Here's what she says. Where do we write? And what difference, if any, does the location of our writing make? How does our location influence what we write and how we share our writing? And what about our own locatedness? And then I'm going to skip a little bit as she describes the special issue. But then she writes, As submissions arrived, it became clear that the topic locations of writing provided a portal into a particularly rich set of observations, accounts, and studies. 
of writing past, present, and even future, of writing in multiple curricular sites, including those in U.S. high schools and colleges, as well as in university sites around the world, of workplace, informal, and hidden sites of writing, of online and virtual sites, and sites of sites, each one a site of invention, of writing for and often with others. Okay, this is Kyle again. When I read the 10 vignettes that begin the September 2014 issue, I was really struck by two things that I want to briefly mention here. This wonderfully tentative nature of vignettes and brief narratives in general, and then later the application of these ideas on location to teaching. Because after all, isn't this supposed to be a podcast on writing pedagogy, especially writing pedagogy in the 21st century? But I don't think my thoughts are the real focus here um, quite yet right now. I really want you to hear more of the good stuff first. So I'll pop in with those thoughts later. So let's hear Finding the Metaphor, which is read by its author, Lisa Lebduska, professor of English at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, where she teaches writing courses and directs a writing across the curriculum-centered college writing program. Finding the Metaphor. Location, location, location. In real estate, a reassuring truism. In writing, though, destinations change. Sometimes the one who loses her way is the one who can't decide where she's going. But sometimes the one who gets lost is the one who refuses to let go of the plan. Senior year, my writing professor and author of fiction gave me a lesson in navigation when she assigned an essay with only one requirement. It had to be titled, Getting Here. Refusing to answer questions about what she expected, she sent us off with the minimalist injunction to, quote, just right. A devout literalist, I outlined a paper that traced a journey from my dorm to our classroom, located above the library's obscure rare books area. But as I wrote, the starting point for here shifted, blowing further and further from Cullend House in North Carolina, until finally it landed on my family's driveway in New York, where my roommate Barbara and her parents first helped me load an econo-line rental with my belongings, alongside Barbara's trunks and a lawn chair holding Barbara's aunt Sissy. At some point during the composing, I decided to include Barbara's Uncle Don. Barbara had told me that he stood outside of their house in his billowing blue boxer shorts, black socks, and sandals. But Don hadn't accompanied us on our trip. He never sat on the green-slatted lounger next to Sissy, along with Barbara's corduroy husband pillow, her little sister Monica, and the white crate packed with Springsteen albums. All he had done was wave goodbye. I wrote Don in anyway and had him banter with Barbara's father, but the language felt fake. I didn't know what Don's place might be, and I abandoned him. A tale about riding down I-95 with Aunt Sissy asking about Brandy Alexander's and guarding the O'Connor line while we unloaded next to a Mercedes struck me as insufficiently grand, however, so I added several philosophical pronouncements about arrivals and love. I gave my high school boyfriend a cameo. Like a lagoon monster from an Edward movie, the essay thrashed everywhere. It fared terribly in workshop. I submitted it expecting a gentlewoman's B and received a chastening C- instead. Neither my readers nor I had gotten here. Often a source of pride and comfort, my writing sat directionless. I was no star. I graduated in spite of myself. Thirty years later, on a rainy August Tuesday, I am scuttling to my car, loaded with a semester's worth of library plunder for me and my students, when the black socks and sandals reappear. 
Splash with mud, they are worn by Shuyang, a soon-to-be freshman from Beijing who peers out from his umbrella and in deliberate English asks, where can I find a map of Norton? This is Shuyang's first time in the United States. He has walked 3.5 miles to campus from the extended stay motel alone. He has arrived before orientation, and no one from the college knows he is here. In Norton, people do not stroll around. Sometimes students walk to Honeydew Donuts or Wendell's, but usually they take the Gatra bus or drive. I want to scream, are you crazy? You can't go walking on that road on a rainy day wearing black. There are no sidewalks. You could get killed. I restrain myself. Screaming would be inappropriate, even if he were my son. Where do you want to go? Nowhere. I want to wander. We can try public safety, I offer, wondering if he will be in my English 101 class. Zhuyang extends his umbrella over me while the heavens pour down. He wants to carry my freighted black satchel, too. And realizing that he is paying respect to an older woman, I relinquish it. He juggles it, his umbrella, his bag, and a dictionary, leaving me with two free hands to wipe the water off my face. At Public Safety, we stymie the first of many people with our request for a Norton map. They ask where we want to go. I force myself to make Zhuyang's reply mine. He, we, don't want to go anywhere. Several more fruitless slashing stops make me realize that no one has a map, but I resolve to get him somewhere. My English is deliberate. I can drive you to your hotel. What will you eat all week? The dining halls are closed. I need to find a market. I will take you. When we arrive at Roach Brothers, I dutifully point out plums and lettuce, which he ignores, heading for a metal cart with barbecued chicken. Where is ice cream, Zhuyang asks. You need dinner. What would you like? We'll get the ice cream later so that it does not melt. We might not have a map, but we must have a plan. Pasta, he replies. In the pasta aisle, Zhuyang asks how to prepare the elbow macaroni I have selected. As I hold forth, he flips the box of the cooking diagram and nods. I hand him a jar of sauce, and we head to the cracker aisle, where he adds Count Chocula cookies before asking, milk, ice cream? In minutes, he has both. At checkout, he studies the rules of the queue, then navigates the sale. So fast. When we reach his hotel, he thanks me repeatedly and asks me to take his picture. I imagine his parents studying the photo for signs of stress or joy, their only child a stranger in a strange land, where he will send his life stories to them and crack his brain against the hard whims of English. I must do the thing that is out of place, without a map, the thing that is beyond the smooth reach of words. I hug him, soggy. As I drive away, I watch him in the rearview mirror, smiling, waving, juggling ice cream and umbrella. I realize that, after all, we are not stars. We are planets, wanderers. He has come 7,000 miles. That was Lisa Lebduska, who was on Twitter at Lisa Lebduska. I think one reason I was struck by these vignettes is... Well, yeah, I don't know. I was just struck by them. I mean, can't, can't you tell why? Can't you hear my reasons um, inherently in the stories themselves? I'm, I don't know. Another way to say that is that narratives, vignettes, literary snapshots, flash nonfiction, whatever you want to call it, they all grab us in this way that pushes against definition, you know? 
I really love Christy Wampole's opinion piece from the New York Times blog a couple of years ago. It's called The Essification of Everything. She connects this tentative, meandering attempts of an essay to an attitude that we sometimes ought to take more often in the rest of our lives. She really defends the undefinable as mattering in itself. And really, many in rhetoric and composition studies know this. I think the study and practice of narrative seems to be increasingly common in our work. I mean, there's that collection of teaching narratives and comp tales, that book from a few years ago. But really, there's also an increasing number of pieces in our journals that pivot on narrative. Haven't you noticed this? And of course, there's the work of the special interest group on creative nonfiction at Four C's. I think the narrative mode, especially as it's practiced in literary nonfiction circles, it has it has a lot to offer the work that we do in RetComp. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. I also think there's something powerful about the brevity of these vignettes in the Three C's issue. And the word brevity, of course, reminds me of Dinty Moore's astounding online literary journal Brevity that's dedicated to short literary nonfiction. In his introduction to the Rose Metal Press Field Guide to Writing Flash Nonfiction, Moore uses the metaphor of a forest fire to explain the effect of the short narrative. Let me read it to you. Imagine there is a fire burning deep in the forest. In an essay of conventional length, the reader begins at the forest's edge and is taken on a hike, perhaps a meandering stroll into those woods in search of that fire. The further in the reader goes with each page that turns, the more the reader begins to sense smoke in the air, or maybe heat, or just an awareness that something ahead is smoldering. In a very brief essay, however, the reader is not a hiker, but a smoke jumper, one of those brave firefighters who jump out of planes and land 30 yards from where the forest fire is burning. The writer starts the reader right at that spot, at the edge of the fire, or as close as one can get without touching the actual flame. There is no time to walk in. The brief essay, in other words, needs to be hot from the first sentence, and the heat must remain the entire time. Okay, right after that quote about the fire, Moore then quotes Judith Kitchen, who along with Moore is one of the people most responsible for the recent popularity of short nonfiction. So Kitchen uses this snowball metaphor instead of fire. Here's what she says. You've got all this stuff out there called snow, but when you gather it all up and really pack it together, you know, you throw it off and there's a sting. I think with these short pieces, even when they're quiet and meditative, the effect is a little sting. Okay, this is Kyle again. Doesn't something seem to burn in the pieces we've heard so far? Doesn't something seem to sting? Where do you teach? It's a natural question at a faculty retreat for a university that has several centers in addition to the central campus. Yet I don't know how to answer. While I will have an office at the central campus... I don't teach in any geographical location with a brick-and-mortar presence and a zip code. That's Marcia Bost, assistant professor of English at Shorter University. Her piece, Writing in and for the Cloud, bridges the gaps nicely between my thoughts on short literary nonfiction and the locations of teaching. She reminds me of Michelle de Montaigne, moving from topic to topic in a way that seems at first to be deceptively formless, but still leaves you staring at the wall for a while afterwards, soaking it in. I teach online. After trying several explanations, I declare that I teach in the cloud. When I'm teaching online, I sit in an antique oak office chair with arms worn smooth. You may hear my chair creak. 
the washer chain cycles, the dryer beep, or the ring of telemarketers calling. I caution my students as I record my messages to them. I don't describe what they can't see. The unmade bed, my great-grandmother's elegantly stitched bridal quilt, the bulletin board with notes about the steps to defrag the hard drive, my highest solitaire scores, a list of projects I wish I had time to sew. Yet the words that I write at this location are likely to be shot towards the cloud. A lesson posted to the server, an email sent, a paper deposited in a box for later retrieval and revision. The words that appear on my screen are encoded as on and off pulses, pushed somewhere. They are to be decoded, read, and possibly new meanings made. A similar cloudiness emerges in my academic writing. That clunker of a laptop on my desk proves too heavy to backpack to my doctoral seminars. So I gradually transition to a netbook, my baby computer with a pink case. My physical location becomes less significant. It could be the quiet of the law library cubicle, the noisy coffee shop, the chilly hallway of a classroom building, or my kitchen table. Any place with an electrical outlet, a chair, and a table. And the last two are optional. Immersed, submersed, in theory and pedagogy, I am often not present to my surroundings. Pop-up software reminds me to upload my photos to the cloud, which is becoming the location of choice for memory storage. The canon of memory has a long connection to location, going back to Simonides. As Cicero recounts the story in On the Ideal Orator, Simonides first suggested the organizing and association of ideas with location. In modern times, Kenneth Burke suggested the pentad, the scene, actor, act, purpose, and agency, as a dramatic way of analyzing literature and communication. While all the elements interact, Burke theorizes that scene is the first among equals, without which none of the rest could exist in the grammar of motives. In contrast, the online classroom problematizes the scene by placing it out of our view. The interactions of the students and the teacher in an online classroom further complicates the idea of scene because they may never meet, except through the text of email, introductions, blogs, and assignments. Online teaching presupposes the location of the author within the text, a presence that has been problematized by postmodern theories such as Roland Barthes' Death of the Author. Jim W. Corder wrestled with that concept too. Although his writing predates the online course explosion, Corder provides valuable insights into the work of location in writing. In Report from the Provinces, he stresses the importance of being grounded in a time and a place, even if that place now exists only imperfectly within the mind and memory of the writer. Thank you.
Like Quarter, I could point to a place. A 1911 two-story farmhouse reached by following a dirt road and fording a creek in East Tennessee. There was no phone, no television, and no indoor plumbing. Electrical wires had been strung recently, and they provided power for pumping water from the spring and for reading by bare bulbs dangling from the ceiling. I could draw a map like quarter, but that would be pointless. It's so culturally remote that my using the term home place draws blank stares in a creative writing workshop and a point-blank judgment. No one's interested. No such place exists for the online class. There is no room in an ivory-covered building. Yet we continue to metaphorically use terms of place when we refer to the cloud, or a web site, or a home page. Hints of places pop up in student introductions. Kansas, Cleveland, Sweden. We post our photos, sometimes with scenes in the background. One recent student posted a photo of herself on horseback rounding a rodeo barrel. She is definitely grounded somewhere beyond the class. As quarter notes, we generate our ethos through our words. Much like ethos, our locations emerge through those words and photos. Yet some students choose the ubiquitous smiley face to represent themselves, negating both presence and place. The actual location of the computer servers which house the information that we access online is hidden and probably not important to the stances that we take. Where do our interactions exist? In some dancing electrons which pass each other in the void of cyberspace? Even cyberspace is a metaphor. In Carta Dictionary, itself existing in cyberspace, notes that the term is, quote, an imagined place where electronic data goes, close quote, or a virtual reality. Again, an imagined place. This term imagined hints at the real location of online writing in our minds and the locations that we create there. We are venturing beyond Burke's all-encompassing scene. In online writing and teaching, the scene may be reconstructed within the mind of the actor by the act of imagining the other actor who wrote the words she reads. Where do I teach? I teach in and through the words we exchange. That was Marsha Bost from Shorter University. 
And really, she's reminded me of something. I teach this class called Rhetoric of Slash In Digital Spaces, a complicated title that I sometimes like and I sometimes don't, even though I'm the one that came up with it. But as I was planning that class, I was struck by the impact of this dual but overlapping focus of the class. You know, on on one hand, the students and I are studying the writing of digital spaces. That's where the of comes from. The kinds of stuff that goes on there, what is said, how it's shaped for that context and all um, modalities, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, we're going to dive in and do rhetoric ourselves in those spaces. It's not just an of, it's an in. We're blogging and tweeting and sounding and showing and all that stuff. So it's the study of the digital in the digital. But as Bost and plenty of other scholars have pointed out, there really isn't much of a there there. You know, we talk as if we're in Tron entering the circuitry and moving around the digital spaces on light bikes or something. But in a lot of ways, when we look at and touch our screens, we're also where we're seated. We're surrounded by the lights and the smells and the bustle that are physically around us, whether we're in a computer lab or in an attic bedroom or a bus. So when I teach a class about digital spaces, I'm starting to wonder if I'm also inviting students to consider physical spaces as much as I could or should. I wonder if our conversations about rhetorical situations online could be more fully fleshed out by also discussing the rhetorical material spaces surrounding our devices and our bodies. This isn't some new idea that no one has mentioned before, of course, but I'll admit it's not often in the forefront of my thinking, especially when I'm zipping down the blue circuit highways on a light bike of my mind. So maybe I'm not so much making a pedagogical suggestion to you, like go out and do this and it'll make you a better teacher sort of thing. But instead, I'm just tossing the stuff out there. Location matters when we write and therefore location matters when we teach. Here's our final vignette. It's Peter Wayne Mose of Ballparks and Battlefields. Mo is a doctoral candidate at the University of Pittsburgh, a campus, by the way, where literally every person I've ever met seems to be the smartest and coolest ever. I don't know how that happens. When people visit me at the University of Pittsburgh, I take them on a walking tour through campus and its surrounding neighborhood, Oakland, on what I call the Tour of Oakland. The tour begins at the Cathedral of Learning, a 535-foot, 42-story marvel of Gothic Revival architecture. Mouths agape, we stand in the cathedral's commons, a room easily likened to Hogwarts, with arches each shoring up five tons. During construction, Chancellor Bowman insisted the arches be real, because, as he argued to architect Charles Clowder, you cannot build a great university upon fraud. From the 36th floor, we overlook the city, before heading across the cathedral lawn to Hines Chapel, its four stained-glass windows the tallest in the world. Heavy soot, a reminder of Pittsburgh's industrial past cakes the chapel's spires. Crossing the street, the tour pauses underneath a life-size statue of Dippy the Dinosaur, cast from its 88-foot skeleton housed in the adjacent Carnegie Museum. When we pass Genley Fountain, I provide pennies for tossing in and making wishes, for both the fountain and the Lincoln penny were sculpted by the same man, Victor Brenner. The final stop is Maserati Field, a Little League ballpark resting where Forbes Field once stood, site of Bill Mazeroski's 1960 Game 7 walk-off home run to win the World Series. This is my university, and in spring semester 2012, it faced a rash of bomb threats. The cathedral received a bomb threat once before, a World War II telephone call the evening of June 25, 1940 but this wave was different. 
first bomb threat appeared in February, scrawled in felt pen in a women's restroom stall. In mid-March came another, now in the men's room. Soon, emails and text messages bore the threats, sent to local newspapers, the student newspaper, the police department, university administration and faculty and staff, and television and radio stations. In the coming months, the university would endure scores of bomb threats, 145 by some counts, sometimes to individual buildings, often to multiple. Evacuation accompanies each threat. The first comes when 10 minutes remain in my class. We simply call it quits for the day. With the second, we do the same. But with the third, we move class outside at the suggestion of one of my many invisibly irritated students. Our outdoor classes initially meet on the steps of Heinz Chapel. The ruckus of other classes meeting there too, the maintenance crew's leaf blowers, and the tourists viewing the organ's 4,272 pipes, however, render this spice less than ideal. After a week of evacuations prompts a week of classes at the chapel, we relocate to the steps of Carnegie Library. With Dippy the Dinosaur in sight, shaded by sycamores, we discuss student papers and wade through assigned readings. But this location, with its steady flow of library patrons, also proves distracting. We eventually settle at Mazeroski Field, the students sitting in the bleachers along third baseline. Our patients wearing thin, I attempt to lighten the mood by sharing some of the tour of Oakland. I show students where Mazeroski's home run cleared left field. I tell them that, across the street in the lobby of Pasvar Hall, home plate still sits in its original location. It's where the babe hit his last home run. My students feign interest, as do I. We are beaten down. The bleachers aren't comfortable. We still can't sit in a circle. But the field is quiet, removed, peaceful. Class is calmer at the Little League Diamond. Maybe it is an association between baseball and lazy summer days, and the contrast of that with the chaos surrounding campus. As the semester wears on, students notify me via email that their parents, no longer believing campus is safe, have requested they come home. My class of 19 shrinks to 6. Students and teachers speak in hushed tones of the looming anniversaries of Columbine and Virginia Tech, fearful that our bomb threats are culminating towards something grim. Pleading that I hold class online, my father reasons, if there's a grizzly in the woods, don't go into the woods. At the same time, I'm reading C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, wherein King Tyrion, knowing he has no hope of winning the battle awaiting him, charges ahead nonetheless. Lewis presents it as a moment of courage, of bravery. Riding the bus each morning while reading of King Tyrion, I begin to see my classroom, for better and for worse, as a battlefield. This battlefield metaphor troubles me greatly, and it prompts questions that linger today. Might the act of going to a place be one of defiance, of triumph, of valor, knowing, like King Tyrion, that I may face my own death in doing so? Is it mere foolishness? And what is my responsibility to my students, to my family, in continuing to hold class in a location of terror? Unable to answer these questions, yet compelled to continue teaching, I hesitantly finish out the semester at the ballpark. The university rescinds its $50,000 reward in April, and disturbingly, the bomb threats stop immediately. A resolution, yes, but hardly resolved. 
The following fall, I gave the tour of Oakland again to visiting friends. My patter, however, did not focus as heavily on the falcon nest atop the cathedral, on the eleven craftsmen who fashioned the chapel's woodwork, or on the remnants of Forbes Field's outfield wall, but rather on how the locations that defined my campus became my classrooms for a semester. These places are where I construct my identity as scholar, teacher, husband, and human. They inscribe upon me the institutions I interact with daily, and I, in turn, inscribe upon them as well, writing myself into their institutional histories. And when these places of writing are assaulted, our narratives change, the locations and the self both bearing the marks of that violent act, the tour of Oakland revised accordingly. Plugs Play Pedagogy is written and produced by me, Kyle Stedman, from Rockford University. Contact me with show ideas on Twitter at KStedman or at Plugs Play Pedagogy at writingcommons.org. The show is licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. However, the four vignettes you heard are copyright 2014 by the National Council of Teachers of English, all rights reserved. They and six more vignettes from that issue are available at nct.org. Just look for the September 2014 issue of Three Cs. And bonus, there's 10 more vignettes in the December 2014 issue, which weren't out yet when I started planning this episode, which is why they weren't included here. But they, too, send a shard of narrative-fueled ice and fire into your gut just as much as those ones do in the September issue. So you should go read them all. Special thanks to Kathy Yancey and Kurt Austin at NCTE. You heard music from artists at gemendo.com, where the music is free and licensed by Creative Commons, including A Heart With Your Name On It Instrumental by Kara Square, With the Fishes by Nonsense Wind, The Rise by Iro Kez, and More Like Aqua, Take One by the James Quintet. I'm recording from Rockford, Illinois, where everyone is preparing for the impending Super Bowl and Blizzard by driving, driving, driving around, all under a sky that is this light gray color of silence, the color of hushed preparation, broken only by these geese that I swear were flying northwest in January. Is that weird? I'm new here. I don't know. This is Plugs Play Pedagogy. <laughs>